Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts. Alpha Shark. Ceiling Cat. Timothy 001. Try to get a little bit more prepared. Oh, okay. Oh, hey, we like preparedness on the show. It's a break from the norm, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Evil Dan laugh. (laughs) No one's disagreeing with me, so. (laughs) Welcome to Polycast, episode number 322, a civilization podcast focused around game strategy. I am one of your regular hosts, Mega Bears fan, along with Dan Q. Cyclops, he only has eye for you. And three guest hosts, count them three, including Alpha Shard. I can't find Sip 4 Palace. Where did it go? Ceiling <laughs> Cat. It's a cat, but in your ceiling. And Timothy 001. Greetings from the Great White North. Is Ceiling Cat like Spider Pig? Uh, it can be if you want it to. Hmm, a ceiling cat. Do we need to call some humane society on you right about now? This sounds ill-advised. Well, you know, cats, they just do whatever they want. There's no controlling them. Oh, so they want to be in the ceiling. Yeah, I wish I could get them out, but they just keep coming. Wait, I'm sorry, there's more than one? So why aren't you ceiling cats if there's more than one? Well, only one can type, so at a time. Wait, if only one can type at a time, how do they determine who gets to type at any particular time? I'm going to be asking serious questions about inane topics here. Just so you know, how can you determine, how do they determine which one gets to type first and second and third? How does that work? I'm intrigued. Uh, There's an elaborate pecking order based off uh, fur length, color, and number of whiskers. What happens if there's a tie in one of those variables? Then what happens? Uh, Cat fight. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, cat fight. There isn't even like a seniority break or something like that? You just go with the person who's oldest? You just go with the scrappiest individual? Yeah, it's not an egalitarian society for sure. I'm sorry, do they fight to the death, or do they just fight to unconsciousness, or what? What if they both fight each other, and they're both unconscious, or they both kill each other at the same time? Then what happens? Uh, Then uh, no one types for that day. They're not very productive, either. Well, what do they even type when they do get to type? I mean, are they typing in English, French, meows, like binary? They're the the sole creators of all those cat memes you see on the internet. Wait, you're saying just the cats in your ceiling are the sole creators of all the cat memes on the internet? They really like cheeseburgers. Burgers in paradise. It's just science. Without Mackie <laughs> here, it's, it's all free-for-all singing. There are no checks and balances. That's true. There this, are no checks and balances. This might as well be the musical episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Frequent guest Candace Albanus, he, he wants to write the musical, so we can't do that. But we can have um, like a musical breaks now and again. There's what we should do. For this episode, we want to transition from one topic to another. I'm not just going to say it. I'm going to sing it. That is an excellent idea. Thank you, Jason. I'm Poly- assigning this. cast on Broadway. What? What, the street? You know, no, like we're, the, we're just out in front panhandling, yeah. We're squatters on Broadway. Oh, okay. Well, see, now that that I can envision. That's true. That's true. Realistic right. goals. And seeing as how the first topic is mine, I'm going to sing to myself, which <laughs> will not be the first time. Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> difficulty. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I decided to go with a high note right off the start of the show, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Ambitious.
dealing with strategic resources and lack of thereof. Fun about it, he uh, posted on the uh, Fanatics website that he's had to restart three games because he's had a complete lack of strategic resources. He tends to play with three to four cities, and in, in the stream they talked about that there's settings to increase the number of resources, and that optimally eight to twelve cities for the Empire. Most of the games I've played, usually you end up missing at least one strategic resource, but it's not game ender. You just build something else and wait until you advance far enough that you don't need the resource anymore. Or you can end up trading for it, or last option, go to war and take it from someone. Or suzerain a city-state that has it. And that's I usually play on the largest map possible, so I very rarely have uh, any strategic resource issues. And I'll even like sometimes reduce sieves or do that option for balancing the resources better for them to show up. So it is one of those uh, things that you have to do options settings. One of my biggest disappointments with Civ 6 compared to Civ 5 was the removal of the strategic resource supply, where you actually had a number of resources and you actually expended them. I was hoping for them to actually go the opposite direction, where they would expand that mechanic so that you would actually spend some of your resources internally. Like, say, for instance, actually spending coal to power your factories or your trains or whatever, instead of just having to have it as a prerequisite. Things like that, like putting horses in your coliseums for horse races or whatever, and that giving some extra bonus. So I think because they got rid of the supply, they had reduced the frequency with which the actual resources appear on the map. Otherwise, everyone would have 10 sources of iron all over the place and uh, there wouldn't be any competition for them at all. So I really do hope that if they do another expansion pack or uh, if they go on to Civ 7, that they bring back the strategic resource supply. It doesn't have to work the exact same way as Civ 5, but just something similar where it's not just a matter of having it or not having it. It's do I have enough? I completely agree with you. When we were going through the whole process of them leaking screenshots and we'd be like, what's happening in Civ 6? We need to know before it released. I think that was one of the biggest disappointments is realizing that they had gotten rid of that, um, that sort of granular sort of stuff. Because I think it really reduced the strategic depth of the game because once you get past two sources, there's not really any super benefit other than giving them to other people. Who often don't need them because they already have one or two sources of their own. Or you don't want to give them to them because they're your enemies. Right. It also led to, I think, certain compromises in the game that I don't really care for. Like, for instance, none of the unique units that I'm aware of have any strategic resources. On the one hand, like, okay, that's, you know, nice from a usability standpoint where you know that you're still going to be able to use that Civ's unique unit without needing a resource. But at the same time, it takes away a lot of the pressure to have those resources. If I've got a unique knight, I don't need the iron or the horses or whatever it requires. So I don't have to go out of my way to try to get it. And if you're not being pressured into having to do things that pull you out of your comfort zone, that also leads to a lot of the games becoming routine. And not having access to a resource or not having access to enough of a resource that you need is something that pressures you to have to expand and do something that makes the game more active and engaging and less of a just hitting end turn until you get to a victory screen or a game over screen. Oh, definitely. I agree with you that they should have gone the other way with the strategic resources. It does make it less challenging. And maybe even have a setting again in the options, you know, customization, unique units require strategic resources on or off. Or even maybe there's a setting that reduces the amount of strategic resources near you to provide a challenge. You have to go out and find them a little bit more. I mean, I agree with Funababbit, who started this thread, that strategic resources are woefully lacking, but not for the reason that they've cited. Strategic resources are woefully lacking, and they're being strategic. It's one and done. 
the advantage to trading it to somebody else to say an AI, because it's unlikely in a competitive multiplayer situation, even if they offered you a strategic resource that you were going to accept it, because hey, congratulations, now that we've declared war, you now have a combat penalty on these units, you'd probably just be better off than the alternatives. <laughs> right, that, in fact, is one of the reasons that I do sometimes sell strategic resources um, <laughs> in single player anyway, is I'm going to yeah. be declaring war on this person. So I'm going to give them the horses they need to build all their mounted units. And then when the war starts, hey, combat penalty on all those mounted units they built. Yeah, which is like, oh, it is <laughs> evil, cringy in and of itself. Now maybe my spearmen can actually stand up to them. Kind of the whether we're talking about quantifiable strategic resources or the absolute strategic resources. And I know we've talked about on the show, for example, it's like later in the game we talk about, you know, having like aluminum or oil. You know, once you've used those resources to construct the pipes, if you no longer have access to aluminum or oil, it's not like they stop working. You could say, well, there's no way you're going to be able to replace them or repair them. But in the abstraction of the game, if you no longer have access to that iron, you still have the iron for your units. Maybe the thing is that it's not an immediate penalty, but you just can't heal those units because after a while, that blade is going to get dull. And if you don't have access to more iron, then you're not going to be able to correct it. But in any event, if strategic resources were such that you needed them, and yes, I realize that it's like, well, Dan, no, you really have to have two of the strategic resources in order to be able to, yeah, accept that you can address that through a couple of ways. Ever since Civ 6 came out, it could be, well, if you give yourself an encampment, then that city only requires one of those strategic resources, let alone the fact that there's this certain governor now called Magnus, who you can move around to wherever you want. And guess what? You don't need strategic resources for any particular unit that requires that anymore. And it's like, oh, there needs to be more reason to go out on the map and get more stuff. Stuff. And the fact that there isn't that many to begin with sources of could certainly be making an argument whether it's better or not to say there's a hundred different elements of iron on the map and would be better off having five clusters of 25 or 10 clusters of 10. You can get into that, but when one gets absolutely everything for the entire empire going forward, there's no decay of resources. Not that I'm suggesting we would necessarily want that either. Although you could argue that that might actually be better than the current state, so long as if there was a decay in a strategic resource that, hey, we found a new source. You know, it wasn't seen before. It's just like at some point in time, oil that we were able to access, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, we can access more oil now, especially in the ocean. And so we have better technology and we can get to that now. Well, I guess we're going to have to go and settle for it, or we're going to have to go and fight for it, or we're going to have to curry the favor of the city-state to become their suzerain to get it. And even if you still cannot get strategic resources, it's not like you are screwed, as in, well, I needed that in this particular era, now I can't possibly advance, I might as well restart. There are alternatives. If you realize early on, hey, I don't have iron, as Boris Gundolf suggests, build spearmen. And then you're like, what am I supposed to do with the spearmen? The spearman line can then upgrade to pikemen, and then you get to pike and shot. It's not that it's dead end. It just means that hmm, you might have to make a different choice in terms of where you're going to be going down the technology tree. Hey, I don't have iron. I guess I'm not going to be prioritizing getting iron working after I realize that bronze working, I don't have iron. I need to be able to construct spearmen, and maybe I want to go on and be able to uh, get pikemen, because that's something I know I'm going to need right now because I'm going to be fighting in this era, either because I want to take something or I'm going to need to be able to defend something. And that just makes an interesting choice that lessens the, even in the early game, I'm doing the exact same thing because I know I'm going to have this, and because I'm going to have this, this then becomes the best choice with that. The fact that strategic resources, by default, are not anywhere and everywhere is a good thing. 
It gets you to look on the map, to explore the map, and decide how am I going to get what I want, but also make you think, do I really absolutely have to have iron? Do I really need coal? Do I really need oil? A wider variety of strategic resources. So maybe you have both copper and iron, and you can make copper swords or bronze swords or uh, iron swords, and maybe the different units have slightly different stats. And in the case of mounted units, you have horses or you have camels, or you have elephants. You know, that might take away some of the Civ's unique units, because every Civ would be building camel archers or war elephants if they have the specific resources for it. But it would mean that it would be much less of an all-or-nothing kind of thing. Like, okay, I don't have horses, but I do have camels, so I can at least make that. Yeah, going back to the sort of notion of, instead of going like a step back from Civ Five, a step forward in the sort of resource management kind of thing, I think that would be sort of an interesting thing to see is that perhaps like units and buildings cost some sort of resource upkeep that comes out of like a pool or something almost when you have gold, like it, it acts like that, I think would be sort of an interesting way to develop that. Right. So you then have to choose whether you want to invest those resources in domestic and economic development or in military development. Exactly. Especially yep. with stuff like coal or like, do I use that for factories that use X per turn or do I use that in ironclads or something like that? or on your railroads, which may have both economic and military applications. Yeah. Uh, I guess you could use NITER, maybe NITER you could use for units, and maybe it does something for your farms, for like fertilizer or something. Like, I feel like there's a way to develop that sort of option of choice, I guess. Yep, I agree. That's the direction I had hoped Civ 6 would have gone. And like I said before, I was really <coughs> disappointed that they actually simplified it and made it more like the way Civ 4 used to work. Yeah. And I think a lot of the same issues can be applied to luxury resources as well, where I would have preferred to have seen a more in-depth luxury system where it actually is beneficial for you to acquire duplicate copies of the same resource. Maybe if you already have a bunch of spices and then you find a bunch of spice islands out in the middle of the ocean, it's still maybe beneficial for you to try to compete to colonize that space. Yeah, something as easy as like for every copy you have of something, it works slightly less. Because I think what luxuries get right, yeah, there would definitely need to be diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah, we need to have diminishing returns. But I I would like to see a mechanic where maybe you could actually monopolize or corner the market on certain luxuries, and that actually increases the value of them when you trade them. So that the, the value of the luxuries is dependent on their availability to the civilization, not just on whether or not they like you. Yeah. Or even something maybe perhaps tied in if corporations return from Civ 4 in any capacity, they could tie into that as well. And I think if you opened it up to a system where there was concrete sort of granular amounts of resources that could turn, take things where like, oh, I have iron, now I'm turning that into steel or something like that, that could be a system that develops as well for more strategic depth. Yeah, you have to build an iron works in a city and then it converts some of your iron and some of your coal every turn into steel. And then you use the steel to build, you know, battleships and battleships yeah. and maybe even like skyscrapers and stuff like that in your city. You know, like maybe a, a neighborhood or whatever requires steel or something, you know, in order to build the apartment buildings or whatever. Yeah. Although I do think that there should be perhaps for some of these later games or the later game stuff where if you don't have oil, you're locked out from a bunch of potentially units. I mean, history says that there should be some way that maybe I can turn coal into oil or something, some sort of alternate way to be able to at least survive in that kind of era. Go full steampunk. <laughs> mm. Also, I think they should bring back more resources, not less. Yes. Yeah. From A Clue Without, would Civ work better without rams? The AI can't use them and players use them too well. 
They make walls irrelevant in many ways, and masonry doesn't need them as it already provides ancient walls and pyramids. No rams would also make siege and siege towers more important. And then they have a couple proposals for what to do in the absence of battering rams. First one being no battering rams. Two, uh, some sort of production policy card for siege and siege towers. Making melee units lose the battle cry promotion, and instead that gives melee units combat bonus versus districts. Heavy Cav get a bonus versus cities as a base ability once you research military theory. Siege units get defense against ranged units. Light Cavalry get an attack malice against cities. Anti-Cavalry units rework to be more defensive, cheaper, combat bonus when garrisoned, and perhaps reworking the promotions. And the AI gets a combat bonus versus cities based on difficulty level. To me, the solution isn't getting rid of battering rams. It's modifying battering rams to be good, but not so damn good. They are too overpowered right now, and they're too overpowered for too long. It's better than it used to be. There's still some limitation. You know, at some point, I forget what civic it is right now, the battering rams are no longer useful, but we're talking, you know, the second half of the game. Yeah. Just for people who don't know, battering rams, what they do is that when a battering ram is adjacent to a district with defenses, all melee units attacking it do full damage to the district walls. It used to be for all cities until the summer 2017 update when they um, said that this no longer works against cities with the urban defenses thing. Also, it apparently upgrades to a medic, which I did not realize. Yeah. I forget. What does the siege tower do then? Siege tower, I think, lets you bypass the walls. You attack the city health. Yeah. It also upgrades to a medic. Everything becomes a medic. Just make the battering ram less powerful and make, I don't know, certain siege weapons, especially the catapult, not so paper-like, which we have also talked about. It's not just that battering rams are so good, it's that talking about siege units, battering ram is a support unit. It should be there to support, but it's doing most of the work, quite honestly, or disproportionately amount of work. It's make it not so powerful for so long. And as again, make catapults a little stronger. And by a little stronger, I mean, all they have to do is have a city bombard look in their direction and they collapse in and on themselves. Yeah. And the battering rams are around all the way until the sieve discovers steel seems a bit much. Yeah, they could maybe uh, add like grenadier siege unit or, or a support or unit or something like, like a that. Sapper or something, yeah. Yeah, and have the uh, battering rams and or siege tower upgrade to that in the uh, late Renaissance or early Renaissance. Yeah. The thing I think that makes battering rams so egregious is, did we not learn anything from the Assyrian siege tower in Civilization V? <laughs> it seems that rather than just having it apply to one specific civilization, let's have it apply to every single civilization. Yeah, and I mean, even the Hunnic UU in Civ Five was pretty potent as well. As battering ram, yeah. The, the battering ram currently gives its bonus to every unit that's attacking the city, right? Yes, any melee. Yes, any melee, yes. Would it make the battering rams too weak if they made it so that the battering ram only affects the unit that's on the same tile as the battering ram? Or at the very least, that and the adjacent tiles to the ram itself, not the city, which would only be max of three as opposed to six. Yeah, so that would basically be half the effect. Uh, would that be sufficient? It would be better. Yeah, because right now there's no benefit in bringing, other than in case you lose one, there's no benefit to bringing more than one battering ram to a city, which seems a little bit silly. Yeah, the only time you want more than one battering ram right now is if you're a war on more than one front, even if it's with the same sieve, and then it's like, oh, okay, I need a second battering ram so I can be attacking this city and this city at exactly the same time. Maybe it could start off as being particularly powerful early on, 
so that the unit that the battering is on and any adjacent unit benefits from it. But then as time goes on, get to his particular technology, defenses have improved. Okay, now it's only good for the unit that the battering ram is currently on, like you suggested initially there, Jason. And then at another certain point, not as late as it currently is, you reach a particular era. I don't know, we get to say, I don't know, Renaissance or something like that. And I guess what? You've been upgrading your melee units, right? You've been upgrading your ranged units probably, right? I think it's time to upgrade your support units too. (laughs) Or also they could make it so that each level of walls maybe makes the battering ram less effective. So ancient walls, the battering ram is 100% damage against the walls. Maybe when you have medieval walls, the units only deal 66 or 67% damage against the walls. And then at Renaissance walls, it's down to like 33 or something like that. And that would tie it specifically to the current technology level of the Civ you are attacking as opposed to your technology level. Well, not just the technology level, but also the infrastructure investments. So it would give you a reason to build medieval and Renaissance walls because if you don't ever upgrade your walls from the ancient, then those battering rams are still going to destroy them. And it also makes just more sense that, like, yeah, Renaissance society, but they still only have ancient walls, then yeah, a battering ram should be totally fine against that. Or maybe even have the higher level walls also maybe just deal passive damage to the battering ram, you know, each turn or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you're ramming this battering ram against a star fort, it's not going to last very long. Yeah, well, and they're probably doing things like dumping oil and fire on top of it, too, so. Yeah. Better yet, boiling oil. Or heck, maybe, maybe something like that could even be a city project that you do when the city's under siege. Maybe have different projects that you could do that defend or fortify the city in different ways. So you run a project for a few turns that is something like boiling oil or something like that. And like every unit adjacent to the city just suffers some passive damage. Yeah. And I mean, a clue with that all says, if you drop rams generally, you can maybe rework the battering ram as unique ability for one of the existing civs, granting that effect to one unit class. I like the idea that battering ram is just a unit that you can construct. Full stop. Maybe, maybe there might be an opportunity for a sieve to have a unique battering ram that perhaps extends the uh, longevity of them for a little bit or something. But as a general rule, the battering ram, it's just, it's so good that it's, I'm sorry, you're attacking a city with walls without battering rams because why? (laughs) There is nothing better. Another idea would be maybe instead of the battering rams and catapults and siege towers being units, maybe make those an ability of uh, military engineers and make the military engineer available much earlier. So you put a military engineer adjacent to a city with walls, and then you use a battering ram ability that you know expends a charge, and that does damage to the walls. And then oh. military engineers now suddenly have way more applications. They're less useless. They're less useless, and perhaps the notion of, okay, the battering ram is originally good for the unit that it is on, plus those adjacent, until you reach a certain era. Well, maybe if you bring along a military engineer, maybe it's now, you know, not every single one, but perhaps the military engineer can provide that same level of support to one adjacent unit as well, so that... There's yet another reason to have a military engineer and the timing of the military engineer and where it's positioned and being able to protect it so that, you know, I'm much better off protecting this military engineer than constructing, say, like another battering ram. But that's something else you could also go with too, right? Because someone could say, okay, well, if at this particular era, a battering ram is only good with the unit it is on or the battering ram is only good for those adjacent units, if I bring two or three battering rams early on and I place them strategically on those units so... 
every single unit is benefiting from that adjacency, that's also worthwhile because you've brought more firepower with you. Yeah. The other thing, maybe we can use, it's possible to use something like what the spec ops have now where they can attack support units information, but something much earlier, right? Because I don't think that ability comes online until the atomic era with the spec ops, no other unit uses it. Because that's one of the problems is you can't kill the, the battering ram without killing the unit that's on top of it. So perhaps there's some sort of archers in cities or something can attack support units or something like that. Or alternatively, again, maybe the military engineer has an ability like that, where if you put the military engineer in your city that's under siege, you can then expend charges to damage support units. Yeah. Quite frankly, we have not only addressed the question in this thread, but now we're expanding on it. I mean, we're, <laughs> you know, we're going beyond what was called for in this thread. Like, what do we do about battering rams? Well, hey, while we're improving battering rams, we could also improve this at the same time because battering rams are too overpowered. And speaking of related such things, military engineers are still so underpowered. Recorded for episode 319 with Dan Q, Makalua, Mega Bears fan, Scarmanga, and warning you too. Well, the next topic is go to civs. It's actually very interesting. By the way, thanks for giving me the one topic that goes four pages. I'm reading all through the words, all the comments here. I initially took just a sort of a informal vote of the number of times people voted for different civs, and one of the ones that took the most votes was the Netherlands, which I was kind of surprised at. Next up was the Cree, Korea, Japan, Persia, Russia. Those were the big leaders. And ones that didn't even get mentioned, Cleo and Mongolia, Genghis Khan and the Khmer, Gilgamesh, Samaria just got mentioned once, which I thought was odd. Anyway, I throw that out there as to, Dan, what's your go-to sieve? Well, yeah, from the thread, the go-to sieve... As uh, Naval Gazer said in the thread, is which leader best fits the way you like to play the game? So it's a very personalized answer. It doesn't necessarily mean it's quote unquote the best or the strongest, but I kind of made a top 10 list. I, I don't know Uh-oh. why. <laughs> Dan, I bet you were heartbroken when you saw that this thread didn't have a poll on it. <laughs> well, the fact that Steve made an informal poll by going through all the four pages of responses and tallying up so that he could turn around and rank, I think you mentioned like four or five, the most four or five common answers, was fantastic because now there is an informal poll. I was disappointed there wasn't one. I feel validated in giving Steve this topic to introduce because he did such a good job in that respect. (laughs) Dan, I'm starting to swoon. And the reason I, apart, I gave you this topic, I know you had four pages to read through, Steve, but uh, you've had the most life experience of anybody on the panel, and I figured if anybody could handle it, it would be you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you still haven't told me what your favorite Civ is. (laughs) I think I know. Okay, you think you know. Yeah. You think you know. What do you think it is? You think you know. I think you like Gilgamesh. You know, Gilgamesh is on my list, but it's not number one. It's not number one. The reason I don't put it as number one is because sometimes, I don't just mean when I choose, say, like an island plates map, but I mean sometimes, oh, there's that too. Sometimes the advantage that is Samaria, which to me is their war cart, because yay warmongering, you're not going to be able to use that when that unit is at its prime, which is at 
the start of the game. Right. It's a little bit more situational than I would want it to be. It is number six on my list, however, so it did make an appearance on my list. I actually put Rome as number one, and that... That is because you're automatically going to start with a monument, so that's one less thing that you need to think about building, and that should be one of the first things that you're building, not necessarily first, although in my case it often is, because I want to be able to generate culture, because I want to be able to get to that first tier one government, in addition to going through the necessary policies I need to in order to get to that. So besides that with Rome, you settle another city, and a road is instantly constructed. And when we have to have trade routes in order to have those roads, and those roads take the duration of the trade route in order to construct those roads, but Rome gets them instantly, those two things combined just help expand my empire. And it really doesn't matter so much that if I'm right up against one particular civilization, because at the very least... I don't have to spend X number of turns constructing that monument or not worry that I'm not constructing the monument for those turns. I'll just say my first three to start here. It would be Rome. China would be next, and that's because their builders receive an additional charge. So that's like getting every fourth builder for free with that additional charge, uh, three instead of four. And the third one would be Greece, because you can receive an extra wildcard policy slot no matter which government is chosen. And that would allow you, for example, you can be getting, say, great general points earlier in the game than you can get to a tier one government, which would otherwise introduce a wildcard policy slot. But even before that, or if you want to do something else with that wildcard policy slot lets you run a second military or a second economic policy slot. Some people might say you don't have to make the choice, but those early turns can help you to snowball and give you a little bit of an advantage over somebody else. So those three are my go-to civs because it's how I like to play the game, which is giving my civilization as good a head start as possible. Yeah, I didn't realize about Rome, but yeah, that is a civ that you've occasionally picked in turncast. This is one of the reasons why I choose random civs, because I feel like I'd be playing with these top three more often than I should. And I feel like in order to be a fully developed civilization player, I should at least have some idea how to play all of these civs. But yeah, I'm like, oh, yay, I ran them into Rome or China or Greece. Yes! <laughs> we know who Mackie's going to be happy to random into, but I'm sure Mackie will explain. <laughs> For those that don't already know. <clears throat> Mackie, well, Mackie, you like Australia a lot, right? Yeah, I, they're not yeah. as powerful as they were before they got nerfed, but it's still a pretty good sieve. And since I tend to, when I play, I have a longer period of peace while I'm building up for a warmongering thing. But then if I get surprise attacked early, then I have all that extra production to build the units and at least hold off the attack until I can get something going. Well, Mackie, you're busy building up your stuff for later war, and you're annoying people beside you with all of the stuff that you have and they don't. Look at my shinies. Which is fine. You want them to get annoyed enough at you to, to declare a war on you, so then you could say, okay, thanks for the bonus. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for declaring. I mean, I have a bonus to production. Oh, look what I have a bunch of now to put in your face. <laughs> that works pretty well for my play style. It's, it's not just because I like Australia, you know, in real life as well a lot. <laughs> just, it also happens to work really well with my play style. I forget, what was the nerf that they applied to Australia? It was that extra uh, bonus to the, I'm not using the right term, the beautification thing, you know? Appeal. Appeal, oh, thank the, you. The appeal, oh, okay. They yeah. the appeal bonuses? Yeah, it, but it's still a decent bonus, and it's okay. still more than everybody else is going to get. They didn't nerf the production <clears throat> bonus from the war decks, though. No, no, that oh, okay. stayed. Yeah, That's the thing I would have thought they would have nerfed. Well, a player can manipulate it to where you're getting declared on a lot, so you get the production bonus a lot. But even so, you can't keep that up like 100% of the time. Well, the big one for me was the liberation, 
right? Because Australia yeah. also has for liberating. And since the AIs are so gung-ho about conquering city-states, <laughs> city states. like, I mean, that was where I got all my bonus production from whenever I would play as Australia. It was not from the war decks on me. It was from me going and liberating all the city-states that the AIs had conquered and then not bothered to defend. Yeah, and then I think they looked at that and went more in the longer term Australia being able to do like plus seven or plus eight or maybe even plus 10 sites for your holy cities or your science district and stuff like that. They're like, hold up a minute. That might be a little too much. So what's your favorite Civ there, uh, Mega Bear fan? I, I think I would probably also go for Australia. They fit my preferences for playstyle a lot. I like to play as kind of the world policeman kind of thing because <laughs> I'm not like... I'm not True. openly aggressive in a lot of the games that I play. So I'm not playing like Scythia and stuff like that and just going around and conquering everybody on the map. But I do like filling that role of keeping all of the runaways in check because I feel like that provides me with more to do without necessarily having to just go on the warpath and conquering people. So I, I like them a lot and their bonuses are really powerful. Uh, I also really like the Dutch and I really like the Cree uh, in the expansion pack. Although I haven't played as every Civ in the game yet, so there might still be others that I haven't played with that might actually be better for me. Uh, Sumeria is also pretty good. I like them a lot, especially back when I was learning the game, when the game first came out. They were a really good, I felt, beginner Civ because of the way that they reward the player for doing things that are good strategy in general. Like you get the bonuses for taking barbarian encampments and keeping the barbarians under control is like just good play in general because the barbarians are crazy in Civ 6. So I felt like the Sumeria is really good for someone who's just learning Civ 6 because it gives you further rewards for doing the things that you should be doing anyway. And then also Civs that I just having in my game, even if I'm not necessarily playing as those Civs are England, Scotland, the Netherlands and the Cree, because I also really like their leader theme musics. So just having them in the game makes me happy because I get to listen to those. Yeah, I really like the free music. Steve, when you were introducing the topic, did you mention from your informal polling that both the Cree and the Netherlands were frequently cited from people in that thread on CFC? Yes, they were. And Japan. Okay. And so, Jason, you mentioned both the Netherlands and the Cree. I had Netherlands at number 10 on my list and the Cree at number 8. Are you looking at the Netherlands because of that major adjacency bonus they get for the campus theater and industrial zones if next to a river? Yeah, that and I also like the unique naval unit is pretty beastly. Polders. I like the polders because they're a really novel element of the game that basically turns water into land almost. I think your term describing them as novel is exactly just that. If you can get the right setup on the map and nestle that in there, that's fantastic. It's not something that's going to carry you or help carry you as compared to the adjacency bonus, but it, it's very nice, it's very unique, and it can be... Very powerful, and as you said, it can help make a really good city site. I don't think it's going to turn a bad city site into a good city site, but it can turn a good city site into an excellent city site. It can turn some bad ones into good ones, depending on how the coastline is shaped. But I think something that a lot of people maybe underestimate or don't realize about the polder in Civ Six is that you can also put polders on lakes. So if you've got that three or four tile lake that your city is next to, all three or four of those tiles are probably going to be able to be polders, and that's pretty good. It's not necessarily going to be something that's common, but it is common to otherwise say, what the heck am I supposed to do with this, particularly if there's no resource in it? Yeah, it's something that you, you normally can't do anything with that space at all, other than maybe building that one, uh, I wonder, yeah, Huey Teoctical, or however the heck you pronounce it. But you can build that and have the polders on there. 
Is your claim to preference for the Cree, the Poisson Trader capacity with the free trader at pottery technology, so it's even earlier than currency? Actually, my favorite thing about the Cree is having a scout that does not instantly die the first time I run into two barbarian horsemen. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I think is a glaring hole in the way that Civ Six's units are set up is not having an upgrade to the scout until the friggin' ranger. There really needs to be a medieval or early renaissance explorer type unit in there because once you get into the medieval era and the barbarians have pikemen, your scouts just can't serve their function anymore. Unless you were lucky enough to get ambush on one of them and it's got the plus 20 strength. But even with the survey policy that gives double experience and going out of my way to try to look for ruins and wonders to get the large chunks of experience, I still have rarely, if ever, been able to get to ambush on a regular scout. Of course, it's a lot easier with the Kree scout because they start with a free promotion and they have, I think, like as much strength as a warrior to start off with. So you can actually use them to fight. What I like doing is I build like two of them and I send them out in pairs so they support each other. And those are, I think, really great units because they take a unit that I think is kind of crap, which is the scouts, and actually makes it something that's useful for a large chunk of the game. I think scouts are very useful. They're just also very vulnerable. The window of opportunity for using them closes very rapidly and very suddenly. And then you also mentioned Scotland. Scotland was number five on my list. I haven't played as Scotland yet. I really like their music. So whenever oh. they're in the game, I'm like, oh yeah, I get to listen to the Scotland theme. Well, here's even more reasons to like Scotland and in-game reasons. I mean, Happy Cities, yes, I know they receive an additional 5% science and 5% production. That's nice. That's a little later on you're going to benefit from that, right? Because at the start of the game, if it's ancient era, 5% of, you know, 2, 3, 4, or 5 is okay, whatever. But Happy Cities generate plus one great scientist point per campus and plus one great engineer point per industrial zone. And of course, if you get ecstatic cities, double all of these amounts. If you're one city early on, you've got a couple of luxuries or two that you can hook up for amenities. Pretty easy to get into happy, even ecstatic. That can really propel you early on in the game, particularly that great scientist, because you can get campuses pretty early. I do think that when I finally do get around to playing Scotland that I will enjoy them because one of my other favorite things to do in Civ is I like doing a lot of resource trading. And so getting all those extra amenities and having all those really happy and ecstatic cities, I think I will really enjoy that once I finally get around to playing them. So Sky, what's your favorite Civ? Well, usually I would just go random, but uh, I kind of like to play ones that are considered bad or misunderstood, I guess. So like Spain or England or Georgia, especially Spain. You have a religion and someone else has a religion for that combat bonus. It kind of cancels out oligarchy. So if the opponent has oligarchy, then I can run autocracy, which I like because then I can run conscription and then a uh, unit production card in the two uh, military slots. So and I like England just because um, they have a, a weird way of going about the map and sticking to the shores and stuff like that. And uh, just being everywhere at once and having your finger in all kinds of pies and able to uh, respond to emergencies around the map. And then just Georgia, because I like playing with the religion aspect, and I like to stay out of Dark Ages, so Tamar makes that really easy, and I like declaring protectorate wars, but usually I would just uh, go random. I suck at all of them, so it doesn't really make much difference, but I like Korea, uh, because I'm always trying to compete with Dan on his science output. I was interested not so much in the favorites, but majority uh, in this thread... The majority of civs were all listed at least once or twice, sometimes more, and the ones that were listed more we've talked about. But Cleo wasn't even mentioned once. Egypt, not mentioned once. Genghis Khan, Mongolia, not mentioned once. 
I thought that was odd. I do also like the one topic that made me laugh, a clue without mentioned of his favorite sieves, England. No, wait, they got nerfed, then nerfed again, nerfed some more. Then they got a big cake of nerfing with wit lameness filling and glazed lame berries on top. I just thought that was just perfect. Uh, no, so Norway, no, wait, they have anti-cav. Pike's military tags have been fixed yet? No. Okay, so Japan. Oh, yeah. Anti-Kev. Pikes. Empty. At least Samurai don't suck anymore. Germany. And he goes on. Spain. Ugh, no. He's not so sure about the Dutch, which we've just said. And Georgia goes, oh, dear me, I give up. <laughs> so I think the, the converse to this thread should be, which are the ones you dislike the most? And that should be one you start, Dan, with a poll. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I dislike Georgia, but I do not understand Georgia. I just don't get what the designers were going for with that one. Okay, I can't resist. Jason, are you saying you've got you know Georgia on your mind? Also, given uh, Steve's comment, this is Steve's way of saying, Dan, you don't do enough around here. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am surprised uh, not to see like Scythia on here because I would have thought that Scythia hmm. would be a, a favorite for a lot of players because of all those free units and you know military bonuses and so forth. If I'm in the warmonger straight off the bat mood, yeah, Scythia. Yeah, and somebody had also mentioned Indonesia. I forgot that that's sort of my pick when I alternate and I'm not playing Australia because because usually if we're going to play an island plates map or something, I would actually rather have that because they have their, around the same time something a little bit better than the frigate and then it's easier for me to do religion and then there's the... C improvement that I can't remember the name of right now. Well, you bring up a good point, Mackie. I mean, sieves uh, uh, depend a lot on the map type. I mean, if you're playing an island archipelago type map, yeah, you want to go with um, ocean. Yeah, somebody who can use the ocean and has good boats. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So some of these sieves, depending on the map type, the game you're playing, I mean, not that we start Renaissance starts very often, but people that like play, playing future, we didn't talk about America. America doesn't get picked very often. It had, I think, it had one or two votes in the thread. But if you're playing future tech, America is a great choice in my opinion, but because of its uh, special jet fighters and what have you, and its bonuses towards the latter part of the game. But depending on the game type, very often chooses the best sieve here. I think they all balance themselves. I actually played Genghis Khan and won playing a single-player game. I just love the ability to the Mongol horde. I mean, I, I thought that was a great choice, but maybe that's just me. Are you saying you won a domination victory? Yes, I did. Okay, so you've, you've made the case for why Mongolia can be a go-to civilization, and I can see that. You mentioned surprise at Egypt not being mentioned, Cleo specifically. What do you think someone would say as to why Egypt would be their go-to civ? Because aren't the war chariots kind of a decent early unit? Yeah, they are, actually. And you get a 15% production towards districts next to a river and uh, wonders. I kind of feel like Egypt would be a sieve where whether or not you're going to enjoy playing as as them is going to depend a great deal on the difficulty setting or the competition. Because Egypt is a sieve that is really geared towards more peaceful trading kind of play style. And if you're playing on a higher difficulty where the AIs are just irrationally aggressive and don't want to be peaceful with you at all, you don't get to use any of Egypt's abilities except for the unique unit. And it's an early game unit, so its window of opportunity is very narrow. But if you're playing on an easier difficulty, then Egypt probably looks a lot more appealing because you're going to get to use those trade abilities more because the AIs are going to be more uh, benevolent towards you. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Other civs that weren't even mentioned at all in the thread, Brazil, not listed. Oh, man. Okay. I'll just say for Brazil, if you have water-based map, your early battleships, I hate you so much if I'm not you. <laughs> those things. Oh, my gosh. You think you've got that great army of frigates going, and then those things show up. 
I mean, yes, uh, additional great people points that Brazil get in the adjacency bonus with the rainforest, all very well and good, and it's also good, but I guess it's just kind of the emotional thing of, it doesn't make it a go-to sieves, it makes me want to go away from sieve if it's a water-based map, or I want to take them out earlier. But I could definitely see why someone would put Brazil on their go-to list. Another sieve that was not listed in the thread as being anyone's favorite, which, again, I thought was odd because I thought it was a decent sieve, and, and it's the cutest name on the whole map, is Mapuche, Lorento. I kind of like their special unit, and it comes along later in the game, and their governor uh, gains more experience in combat. Yeah, I do know when they show up as one of the AI players on a the map, they are a pain in the rear. Yeah, they are, yeah. I would say the other two civs that we haven't mentioned yet, but were also on my list, would be uh, Korea plus six science for Asiawan. And then if you have mines and farms adjacent to it, that's plus one yield for each of them respectively, but also, again, plus six science. Trying to find that on the map before you are able to get to recorded history civic and then double that output to say you go from three to six. You can get that plus six right from the outset. You just have to build it on a hill. Wow. Nubia. Uh, because of their three movement archer, and then they also inherently get plus 50% production towards ranged units. So they have an added incentive to construct them because their ability gets that before they even adopt one of the early civics that also gives them plus 50% production towards that. And then the leader gets plus 20% production towards all districts, rising to 40% if there's a Nubian pyramid adjacent to the city center. So those things just really snowball very, very quickly in favor of Nubia. So, I mean, Korea, fantastic scientific output. Yes, I find Nubia even more intriguing for those reasons, because it's not just one thing that makes Nubia good, it's several things that makes Nubia so good. I thank Naval Gazer for starting this thread. It's certainly an interesting thing idea to discuss all the different civs and why you like them. I always play standard settings, standard difficulty, continents, and everything. Random everything else. So I ended up with Norway. I ended up with Arabia just to my north, Germany, Russia, Scotland, and the U.S. on the other continent. And about halfway through the game, Russia took out Germany, which kind of surprised me. I was able to capture two barbarian settlers that were originally Saladins, and I cut him off. So he's got five cities just sort of the north. And I've been playing for being very strange, a very peaceful game. I'm actually allied with all four civs right now. Uh, so you're planning on seeing that game through so you can uh, follow up with us on a future episode? Yes, definitely. Okay, good. Sounds like it's a good setup. We don't want your game canceled or anything. You know, this doesn't, have, <laughs> no. this doesn't have to be like TV or a Netflix thing where stuff just gets canceled left, right, and center. Homework. Dan expects a 500-word essay posted on the forum topic for this episode about how the conclusion of that game goes. And a hand-drawn map. Exactly. Oh, let's not be ridiculous. <laughs> let's go with diorama. It needs to be a diorama. <laughs> Interpretive dance. I'm willing to be reasonable. Instead of 500 words, 450, and you have to dance a jig. Film yourself dancing a jig. A Norwegian jig, somehow. Yes, you have to have a theme. Sing and dance at the same time. I hope you have a good lung capacity. Sing and dance at the same time. That reflects the nature of your work. If it doesn't bring us to tears, it's not doing its job. And whether those tears are happy tears or sad tears, you know, that, that I'll leave that up to you. That's your interpretation. It's your creative work. 
Yeah. Also, you better figure out what exactly it is that I want or you will fail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to real life. I'm just setting you up for, you know, future greatness. I was going to say disappointment, but sure, sure. I'm sure great people are disappointed. Yeah, disappointment can also be great. Yeah, that's true. That's true. What a great disappointment that was. This is an awful segue to the next person <laughs> who wants to speak about their games. Speaking of great disappointments, Jason, what about your games that you want to talk about? So, so I had two interesting things happen in a game I was playing uh, over this past week. There's no reason to ever put Amani the Diplomat in any of your own cities. Well, I actually did do that. And the reason for that was because... Loyalty? Yeah, pretty much. One of my neighbors had captured several border cities that were belonging to a third civilization in which we both shared a border. And those cities ended up turning free from loyalty pressure. I was playing as the Kree, so I was going with kind of a peacemonger strategy, but I saw an opportunity to expand because, you know, you're automatically at war with all the independent cities. So I went in and I captured those cities after my AI friend lost them from loyalty pressure. But then I was having trouble maintaining the loyalty pressure. So I actually took the um, promotion with Amani that gives you like plus loyalty for all of your cities that are within nine tiles. And I put her Ah. in my city that was closest enough to those new cities that I just captured and then i put governors in those cities as well in order to um maintain loyalty and also had to adopt policies to maintain loyalty in order to keep those cities because without all that stuff they would have flipped back to independent and i actually did spend a sizable chunk of the game having those cities flip from loyalty and then having to recapture them because I didn't have that promotion for Amani yet. I had to wait to get that promotion before I could make the difference. And then another interesting thing that sort of happened in that same game was, I don't know if, if anyone has noticed this, but when a city flips independent, if there are any units belonging to another civ that are sitting in the city, those units stay in the city. They can kind of get stuck. You can move them out and then attack the city or whatever. But something that happened that was kind of annoying was one of Persia's cities flipped. But Persia had a unit inside the city, which prevented me then from capturing that city while it was independent because I couldn't move onto the city because a Persian unit was already there. So I had it down to one hit point from bombardment, but I could not move any of my melee units in because a Persian pikeman or whatever was just camping in the city, not letting me take it. Unless you declared war on Persia. I didn't try that, so I'm not sure exactly how that would work, because uh, could you still, like, it'd basically be fighting two enemy civs at the same time. I'd be attacking the city and attacking the Persian unit. I'm not sure if the game lets you do that. It just explodes. Yeah, the game probably just crashes at that point. I I don't know. I might reload a save and see what happens in in that condition. Well, first off, hang on. You wouldn't actually be attacking a second civilization. A city-state is, an independent city is, is not a civ. Two factions. Oh, okay. All right, fine. (laughs) I guess would be a better way of saying that. The other interesting thing that happened in this same game was another civilization built airplanes. What? And and used them. Okay. Yeah. You sure it wasn't a secret like multiplayer game? Uh, Yeah. Drop in, drop out multiplayer. Total War's done that too, in the past. Yeah. I I I was amazed. And it wasn't just a biplane; it was a jet plane. Oh, I was just about to ask that question. Okay. Okay. Yes, I, I actually saw the AI use a jet fighter. Well, because let me just say, a biplane is rightly named, like, biplane. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I still have never seen the AIs build a neighborhood district, but I did finally catch a glimpse of the elusive AI air unit. Well, they never build any neighborhoods because they get all these buffs based on difficulty levels that allows them to have infinite population. Didn't you know that? Right, and then all my spies <laughs> end up with the promotion that lets them recruit partisans, and I can't use it in a single-player game because none of the AI civs ever have neighborhoods. And I'm like, ugh. 
All the AI civs are so advanced, they've started building underground. That's where all their neighborhoods are. Yeah, apparently. They're building all their neighborhoods in Beyond Earth. <laughs> they've already left. They've already gotten the space victory. They just haven't told you yet. Yeah. So I'm just now going to, through a series of questions, try to sensationalize this by critiquing your play, Jason. But again, it's just simply, simply, simply for sensationalization purposes and headlines for the show because, you know, we need ratings and we need listeners. Mm-hmm. This using a Manny for this purpose, I guess, are you saying you didn't explore and therefore you hadn't found any city-states to put her in anyway? There were no city-states within that, I think it's like a nine-tile range that that works. So there were no city-states within nine tiles of where I was trying to put the loyalty pressure. There were no city-states at all for you to put a Manny in? There were, but I wanted to maintain the loyalty in those cities because one of the cities had a particularly valuable strategic location that was very defensible. And I wanted to be able to hold that in case at the end of the game, the Mapuche decided to get all aggressive towards me. You forgot to build your government plaza, didn't you? You didn't you didn't go ahead and build your government plaza there so I, you could have plus eight loyalty? I did build the government plaza. It was way in the center of my civilization, though. So it, the range did not quite um, affect those border cities. So you're saying you didn't properly anticipate what would happen later in the game, early on in the game. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. I did not anticipate on turn 40 that on turn 300, I would uh, need a government district in a flipped city to maintain. Well, the other problem is that that city was losing loyalty so fast, I did not even have time to repair the monument before the city flipped until I you know, moved Amani in there to add loyalty pressure. Wow. That was how much loyalty was being applied from all the different civilizations in that particular area. All right. So this story is a.k.a. why Jason moved down in difficulty level. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It probably wasn't very good play. It was not very good play. Non-optimal play. But I was like, I want these cities, dang it. It's called creative play. Right. Why I don't play on Immortal and Deity, because I like to be able to do things like that and, you know, not be overly punished for it. Yes, yes, creative play, the slogan of people who don't win. Okay, I've properly, unnecessarily attempted to scandalize your play. Thank you for being such a good sport about it, Jason. Sorry, and I might not win this game. I'm currently in the lead for culture, but some of the AIs, if they actually do build the spaceship parts, might beat me to a space race victory. Because I have also never seen the AI build any spaceship parts. They build the spaceports, and they research the techs, and then they never build the parts. So yes, so you have seen the AI not only first off actually construct an aerodrome, but actually put an air unit in there that was not a biplane. Now you're just waiting for them to actually do something with their spaceports. Right. They built an air unit. Now they need to build a space unit. I guess one level at a time. Yeah, just baby steps. In fairness, they really should be trying to construct air units before they construct units that go into space, right? I mean, it's really a natural progression. You would think so. Good practice. Yes, practice makes perfect. By the way, Jason, do you have a follow-up from our theater segment on episode 320 where you were going to reload that save or get a chance to reload that save to see if you could actually declare that emergency on yourself? Oh, I forgot about that because I was playing another game. Uh, I did not. I'll have to make a mental note to try to remember to do that if I still can find that save. I think you purposely didn't load that save because you knew I was going to ask and therefore you'd have to be on at least one more episode to follow up again. Curses! You right, because it's not like plan. I'm here every other week, so... Ah, that's only because you're entertaining! <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I, I, you're right, I, I should have done that, and part of it was I didn't play Civ at all for, like, the week after that, because I was doing other projects and things like that, so it slipped my mind. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. 
Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121-288-7659. That's 44121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. I don't want Civ to turn into so many of those other games that just come out every year where there's just small incremental improvements. If we really like Civ 5 or Civ 4 or Civ 6, we can still go back and play those games. So I hope Civ 7 isn't just Civ 6.5, you know? Yeah. Kind of like, uh, you know, Civ 6 did get criticism early on for being just Civ 5.5. I don't know, Civilization 2019 has kind of a nice ring to it. <laughs> yeah. I guess you would have to do a calculation of all the different things and see if it comes out to a balanced one third each of how much is new, how much is different, and how much is just slightly changed or you know kept the same. All right, all right. So Civilization Seven. I think the art style should be uh, cubism. <laughs> we should have two units per tile. We should use triangular. <laughs> we should have MIDI files as for all of the audio. Bring back the uh, city council. Uh, we should have diplomacy. Diplomacy is uh, only when you're connected to the internet. And <laughs> it's decided by rock, paper, scissors. But good news, it'll be on a spherical map. There you go. All those That's something I would really love one. to see. Whenever they figure out this random Pentagon problem, we'll get it. No, 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 no. We have to think about ways to make the game completely different from where it is right now. So you win with the lowest score. Now, instead of the highest score, I call it the golf variation, where you have to... <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say Mario Party. Yes, Civ Mario Party. You play as Elizabeth, and you, like, roll the dice. I would play that game. I would play Civ Party. Well, if we called it the golf variation as opposed to the Mario Kart variation, then we could legitimately say that Civilization Seven is an eSport. Oh, perfect. See? You know how you get your civilizations to get increasing levels of population? You get so many likes for your city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. Oh, man, all right. Social media engagement. That's, it's that's... what the people want. It's what they deserve. Oh, maybe we can incorporate mud wrestling somehow. A lot of people like mud wrestling. And cats. I know all the leaders are different cats. Okay, this will make the game really popular. It will sell well. It will sell to the masses. I know somebody who you would have just sold a game to, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this has been Polycast episode number 322. You've been listening to the dulcet tones of Dan Q. My voice. My voice, your ears. My voice, your ears. Mega Bears fan. Playing suboptimally since 1985. Alpha Shard. I play on Chieftain, so it's okay. Timothy001. Luzion Emperor for many years now. And Ceiling Cat. A bunch of cats that have now fallen out of the ceiling. All right, Dan, sing us off. What? What? <laughs> We're waiting. This is instrumental. This is this is an, an instrumental selection. It has something to do with this show. It was beautiful, is what it was. It's the T song to the show. A lot of shows have these. 
theme. This whole episode has been just way too professional. Scott will now define professional for us. <laughs> Our date October 20th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips, copyright Take Two Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.